everyone, and welcome to Sex Ed Shouldn't Suck. I'm Kaylee. And I'm Jen. And this week, we're chatting with Melissa Fabello, who is a bisexual goddess queen, <laughs> uh, a relationship coach. She is has a PhD in human sexuality studies, which is impressive oh, enough. I so know. Um, <laughs> it is hot. I mean, when you, when you listen to her talk, you'll be in all, I promise. <laughs> And she also runs uh, like classes and support groups and talks to large groups of people. I've done two of her support groups already, um, a bisexual one and an avoidant attachment one, and they've both been like life-changing and affirming. So if you ever get a chance to work with her, I definitely recommend. She also very recently got into something new that she's going to announce at the end of, of the episode, so stay tuned for that. Yeah. And uh, Exclusive. Yeah. We have the exclusive inside scoop here at Sex Ed Shouldn't Suck. Uh, But in this interview, we're going to be talking about bisexuality, queerness, tarot cards, like all of it. It's it's a fun talk that's like it 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 covers the the gambit, if I may. We even may talk about Taylor Swift a little bit. Yeah, T Swizzle a little bit. Yeah, so. Go give it a listen. Enjoy. Enjoy. Hi, Melissa. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to talk about sex. too. Always. Always. (laughs) Most of the time. Yeah. (laughs) So to start off, can you share your pronouns and your sexuality if you're comfortable with it? Sure. I use the pronouns she, her, and I identify as a queer bisexual femme. Nice. Ooh, so many descriptors. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Great. So let's just jump right in. Can you tell us about the sex ed that you got growing up at school, home, wherever? I feel like probably the sex ed that I received was probably middle of the road. It it wasn't horrible and it also wasn't great. I at home had this really sort of interesting process where um, two of my friends and I in the third grade became very, it's like the normal age to become curious about these things. And we would at lunch be like, oh my God, like, what is a period? Do you know what a period is? No. Okay. (laughs) Let's go home and ask our moms. And tomorrow we will like reconvene. And so we would do this frequently as we would go home, all ask our moms and then come back and say, okay, this is what I was told. Interestingly, when it came to like sex and we asked about sex and we came back, we had shared, me and one of the other girls had shared like, oh, our moms told us it's like, a penis and a vagina, da, 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 da. And one of my friends was like, that's not what my mom said. Ooh. Oh, no. And we were like, what? And long story short, her mother had actually described sex as anal sex, which like, huh. I don't know why. Like, I'm so curious <laughs> as to why, but then I'm also like, you know what? Penis and vagina sex is not it either. Like, is yeah. not the, to- the whole conversation, right? So I'm like, that's cool. Like, I don't know why that is the information that like that's where she <laughs> went, but like, awesome. So I felt like growing up, I could definitely ask my parents and particularly my mom about different sexual things Mm -hmm. and that she would talk to me about it. Um, 
but it was very heteronormative. It was very cis-normative. There wasn't a whole lot of, um, you know, anything outside of like the most basic kind of explanation of things. And in school, we had, you know, different kinds of sex ed. There were like moments that I can remember. <laughs> I remember in the fifth grade, they did like a puberty, which is kind of too late, which mm-hmm. I also find is interesting. Like we should have done this in like <laughs> the third grade, but like they told us about puberty while we were experiencing puberty. Um, and I remember talking about like deodorant and shaving. Like that's the only stuff that I really remember. Or um, acne was another thing I remember them telling us about. And then I remember eighth grade, I can remember taking a health class and learning about STIs. Mm-hmm. And then I know I did health in high school, but I don't really remember anything about it. So that's, I mean, I don't, yeah, it was, it was imperfect. And I think, Mm-hmm. I think it was more the experience. Honestly, I feel like a lot of my sex ed, I know we talk about pornography being a big place where, where kids learn about sex. And there was definitely that in my life. But honestly, AOL. Hmm. I feel like now that I look back on it and I'm like, oh, that was probably like men talking to <laughs> child me. And that was like inappropriate and scary. Yeah. You were like all up in the chat rooms, right? And everyone was like, <laughs> exactly. And exactly. 45 year old man's like 17. Yeah. And, and being like, you want a cyber? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And so, um, but I feel like I learned a lot um, from those, from those conversations. So I feel like that's, I mean, yeah, it was like mostly talking to my friends and then mm-hmm. yeah, the little that I could talk to my, my parents about and then pornography and AOL. Wow. I love mm-hmm. this like underground sex head that you and your friends. Yes, we <laughs> really had. We, we did. We really, all right, what did you learn? So I did something similar. I think it's seventh grade. I had like a little AM FM radio and I discovered the like sex Q and a radio station that played at night and I would listen to it and then go tell my friends what I learned. That's amazing. (laughs) So you were like a sex expert. In I like guess the third grade or something. That's amazing. I think so, except that I think it was like a kind of like raunchy radio station, probably led by like a man totally. who was just like <laughs> boobies, you know? Yeah, right, <laughs> right. That's well, I mean, right. And that's like I feel like with sex ed that so much of us get is so patriarchal mm-hmm. and so like through this lens that it's no, you know, coincidence, I guess, that that people who aren't cis men then grow up and our sexuality kind of to come back to our authentic sexuality is really difficult because yeah. it's taken away from us before we even discover it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it so sucks. True. Like I, I hate that for us. Yeah. It's kind of interesting how that has happened when it seems like anytime you meet someone working in the sex ed space, they're almost always queer. <laughs> Sure. It seems like, uh, yet then so much of the sex ed that we all got was very like heteronormative and like mm-hmm. yeah. patriarchal society driven. I mean, it's probably because of that, right? It was right. like, wow, I got none of this growing up. So I'm going to be the force that helps other people come to these realizations. And mm-hmm. that's um, true. But then that's you why know, we started our podcast, right? <laughs> if you are a queer person trying to, you know, make sex education better, you get accused of grooming these days. Oh, right. So, right. Uh, yes. <laughs> totally. Of course. That's yeah. <laughs> that's fun. That's fun. Yeah. <laughs> love that. <laughs> so you mentioned that you are bisexual. Can you tell us a little bit about what was that journey? I mean, especially going from such a heteronormative way of learning about sex to kind of coming to terms with that. What was that like? 
I feel like I have, I, I almost feel like my story, my bisexual journey story is very boring. It's very different from the mainstream story, but it's um, kind of boring because <laughs> I, it was not something I ever struggled with. It was just mm-hmm. something I always knew. And so I didn't really have to come to terms with anything. It was just, yeah. it, it, I had to learn the word. I didn't know the word until middle school. Mm-hmm. And I, I knew that I was attracted to what I understood at that time as a very young person as like boys and girls. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew that from out of the womb, like that was never a question. It was then being like, okay, I know there's this thing called gay. I didn't know that there was a word like straight, but I knew that that was what most people were. <laughs> yeah. And then there was this thing called gay. And I was like, Oh shit. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't know which one I am. Like, I, I don't know. And that, that was the thing that was confusing. Mm-hmm. And when I first heard the word bisexual, my best friend in the, I want to say in the seventh grade, maybe the eighth grade, she had had this crush on someone and she wouldn't tell me who she had a crush on, but she was like forlorn. Like she was like, so like mopey about this crush and she wouldn't tell me who she had a crush on. And, you know, finally one day she was like, okay, okay, okay. I'll tell you who it is, but I have to tell you something else first. And I was like, all right, what, you know? And she was like, I'm bisexual. And I was like, what does that mean? You know? And she was like, I like boys and girls. And I like, I remember exactly where we were on the bus. Like, I remember it so clearly that I was like, oh my God, I'm that too. Like, it was just so exciting to have a word. And I think since then, it had really just been the battle of like dealing with biphobia and larger, mm-hmm. like queer phobia in the world. Yeah. But I don't feel like I don't, yeah, I don't really feel like I had like an internal struggle around it. But I think externally yeah. over the course of my life, it's been hard you know, mm. to, to work with, yeah. with the way the world is. That, yeah, totally understand that. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so then it sounds like you didn't have like a, like a coming out. I mean, did you ever like talk to your family about it? Yeah. I, you know, by the time I was like in the eighth grade, I was identifying as bisexual to like the people around me. And mm. my first I mean, I had relationships prior to this, quote unquote, but like my real first relationship was with a woman. So Mm. there also was never like, oh, am I queer enough? Like I just never had that struggle. Um, And when I was dating- what's that like? (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs) It's it's very unusual. It's like a very (laughs) unusual, I think, um, uh, journey. It's very different from, I think, what most people experience. And um, I think, you know, when I was with her, I- eventually you know at some point it's like your parents aren't they they don't not see do you know what I mean like they see something and so I did have a a conversation with my mother when I was like 16 Mm -hmm. about it and it was very much like I was like you know how I like boys well I like girls too and again like that's not how gender works but that's how I understood it at the time and she was just like yeah I know I was just waiting for you to tell me (laughs) you know it was pretty simple she definitely was like um don't tell your father she was like don't we don't want people in the family to know like don't talk about it. You know, mm-hmm. um, I had this experience in high school where I was being like, you know, ultimately bullied, but like these, um, guys that I was friends with were calling me a dyke and I got really upset. And I like went to the guidance counselor. And when I was telling my mom later, you know, what had happened, she was very kind of like, well, what do you expect? You know, like if you're going to tell people about it, what do you expect to happen? So it wasn't wow. like um this perfect, like, wow, like, yeah, I came out and like, there was no problems <laughs> and everything was wonderful. It wasn't like that, but like, you know, so we had these kinds of moments and I do hold a lot of kind of resentment around how my parents 
showed up around that and how they think they showed up, which is yeah. like more where the mm. resentment is, is like now they're like, wow, you're yeah. so accepting. And I'm like, mm. uh, like I remember several problems. <laughs> They're um, like, we here. didn't even kick you out of the house. <laughs> yeah, that's like basically, right. They're exact. Yeah, we didn't even do that. Like, we didn't just own you or anything. Yeah, so, yeah. So I did have like a, a quote unquote coming out, but I feel like in terms of like um, coming to know myself, um, that was a really easy part mm-hmm. of the journey, I think. That's cool. That, I like to hear that. And hopefully that's more of the norm for I kids think these days. I it's becoming more of the norm from what I understand, like with yeah gen z yeah and they're having a really different experience so and the younger oh, yeah. ones we do so they have good. a name yet <laughs> i don't know <laughs> is there a new generation i don't even know I they're just know. gonna go back to generation a they're gonna start over <laughs> yeah just start over <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> so it sounds like you i'm very jealous of the time you had understanding yourself i had a lot of internal and external struggles, but Kaylee and I both grew up religious. And so it doesn't really sound like that affected you a lot. It affected us a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, So I definitely had trouble accepting myself and figuring out my own sexuality. And I I know that, you know, it was a journey for you as well, but um, how did you sort of develop your queer identity? I know you understood gender Mm -hmm. and bisexuality very differently when you first came out, but how do you move into like a, a more whole queer identity? That's a great question. I think so for me, when I think about queer identity, I think of queer identity as a very specific political and like politicized identity. I think, I know we tend to use the word queer as a catch-all and I think that Mm -hmm. it does have a place there. Like that is a thing that we do. I do it, you know, like it is a thing and I hold that. I also think that (laughs) being that kind of queer, which is like, oh, I'm attracted to people, you know, of whatever gender or genders, is not inherently a queer experience. Queer is the politicized kind of kind of version yeah. of it. And I think I really strongly identify queer is a really important, I think, identity for me. Partly bisexual is a very important identity to me because of how stigmatized it is. And it feels really important for me to like really own um, that that is my like sexual identity. And queer is really important to me from a political standpoint, but also from the standpoint of my experience with bisexuality is different than I think what a lot of people's experience with bisexuality is in that I don't date cis men. Um, and so I'm not attracted to cis men. And so, um, it's also important for me to have another word to like describe my attraction, which like my attraction is to queer people or to queer relationships. Yeah. But I think as a, as a political identity, to me, queer is about, like, how do you exist outside of social norms? And we can all only do that up to, like, some point. But it's, like, how do you see the world? And how do you see the world in, like, um, outside of heteronormativity? To me, like, that yeah. is queerness, is, like, how are you, yeah, showing up in the world, showing up in your relationship, showing up politically, that is outside of heteronormativity and very, like, purposely so. And how do you form connections and relationships with people, not just sexual and romantic relationships, but all relationships. Um, And that to me is like its own unique experience. It's crazy to hear that you define your sexuality based on like political 
Mm. Like, I, I wonder if that's an experience that any cis straight people would have, you know, having right. to think about your identity and like through a political and socio like lens. <laughs> Which is honestly wild because that's what identity is. Yeah. Like identity <laughs> is an experience of social location, you know? So like my whiteness is quote unquote the norm, mm-hmm. you know, um, and my whiteness is political. Like there's no way to like pretend that like you, c- I can't, um, like divide whiteness and white supremacy they exist mm-hmm. together and so it's right. i think it's interesting to me right that often people who are of the dominant identity don't even think of it as an identity or don't really think about how it's it's inherently politicized to be yeah. anything <laughs> you know right. but like like straightness is a political and not like a choice but i mean it's like to live in a heteronormative way that is a choice mm-hmm. like to decide yeah. like i am going to live like this and kind of go with the status quo that is a choice Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think people have trouble seeing that because they're like literally swimming in the soup, right? They're like, mm-hmm. it's it's all around them. Like, mm-hmm. do fish know that they're in the ocean? Right. <laughs> sort of thing. They know when they're not, like, I guess. When they, I guess when they, they, right. they have oxygen they know and they when, can't handle when, it. When like a trans person asks for some rights, they're like, wait, no, my soup. Right. Exactly. <laughs> That's, I can't handle that, you know, but it's like, you're not thinking about it otherwise is a, is a wild, I can't yeah. imagine that. Any in any kind sure. of like yeah social location to not be thinking about it all the time. Yeah, yeah, I I so identify with that, and I think it's interesting. Speaking of straight people, I think they often get hung up on queerness being only or maybe like more sexual. Mm-hmm. Like, I, and I think this is where the argument comes where you can't, you know, you shouldn't be teaching about queer families or mm-hmm. people in school. You shouldn't say gay at all. You have to out you know, queer children, because they can't, in their own relationships, in their own straight relationships, I think sex keeps them together a Mm -hmm. lot. And so they can't fathom how queer people would be together if it wasn't just for their sexuality and how that that isn't inherently sexual. Mm. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about queer relationships and what, what they mean to you specifically and how they're not only sexual? Yeah, you know, it's so interesting to me because like sex and romance are two completely different concepts. And I think culturally we think of them as the same. So it's like there's one, there's kind of this value around you shouldn't have sex with people unless you love them. There's this kind of value. And then there's this idea that if you were in a romantic relationship, it is inherently sexual. Mm. None of which is true, you know, and I think people can understand sex without love very easily and people struggle to understand love without sex. Um, But Mm. both can exist (laughs) and both are normal. And I think I remember um, maybe being in college and my mom saying something to me about not understanding pride um, because she was like, you know, I don't have to have a parade to talk about who I have sex with. You know, and I was like, God, that's I like not so it. many times. You know, like, maybe like, you should try it, mom. Yeah, maybe, maybe you should. It's really it. nice. I was like, that is not <laughs> what pride is. <laughs> like, you know, and so, um, and I also don't want to like take away how important sex like has been mm-hmm. to like queer history and queer liberation Absolutely. and that like actual sex acts, you know, are also important mm-hmm. and like, yes. that's okay too. But I think when I think about queer relationships, yes, obviously I think of them as relationships between, you know, people of particular genders that are queer or whatever, but like beyond that, I think it's also about how are we in relationships? So for example, what I mean by that is I don't think inherently that let's say two men in a relationship are inherently quote unquote queer, 
like they they're gay or like whatever bisexual their relationship is like queer in that kind of like um lowercase q way but like they're not necessarily doing anything like radical like to do like assimilationist queerness i don't think is like politically radically queer mm. you know and i think that i have a lot of thoughts i've been thinking a lot about <laughs> assimilation politics lately um and just fascinating yeah there's a lot there but i think yeah when I think about queer relationships, it's kind of like what I was saying, like is looking outside of heteronormativity to want to assimilate into heteronormativity is not going outside of heteronormativity. It's being like, Hey, we're, we're normal too. And like, we want to be in this club Yeah. rather than to look at the ways in which gender plays a role or gender roles play a role in our relationships, the ways that um, we form or have relationships outside of our kind of like monogamous nuclear family kind of way of understanding. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to be in community with people? What does it mean for like community care to be an aspect of the relationships that we're in? What does it mean to not be monogamous? Which is also interesting to me because I don't mean this in like a stereotyping way, but a lot of like queer or gay men, like non-monogamy is a very common thing in like that community in particular so it's just so wild to me that like but it's kind of hush hush and like we don't talk about it um and it's i don't know i just think that how do we do relationships outside of the kind of status quo norm that is set up for us and thinking about that and being intentional about it and politicizing those relationships to me is what it means to like be in queer relationship it almost sounds like there's an overlap then of what you're talking about of queer relationships with non-monogamy am am i understanding that yeah i have feelings about straight non-monogamous people wanting to call themselves queer that kind of weirds me out Mm -hmm. but like um i think that there is i think it's a venn diagram i think that there's overlap but it's not like a circle Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. well and i think that non-monogamy polyamory all that is I, well, I have no idea. I'm pulling this out of my ass. More common in, in queer communities. I mean, kind of what you said just earlier there. I think that there's like a sometimes a sense of when you're already going against the status quo, it's a yeah. little bit easier to continue going against the status quo um, for sure. And mm-hmm. I think that without institutions like marriage having been historically accessible Mm -hmm. to us and things like that there have been ways to figure out like how to operate outside of it at the end of the day non-monogamy non-consensually is actually the most common relationship style in the united states Mm -hmm. most people (laughs) cheat (laughs) so it's like it's it's wild to me that we can't talk about (laughs) non-monogamy as like consensual and 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 more whatever ethical melissa that Um, is unethical it's just just wild to me that people so many people cheat, you know, like depending mm-hmm. on the study that you look at, I mean, it can be up to like 80% of people cheat on their spouse and like, but whatever. Anyway, so like, yeah. <laughs> no, no, it, it's, it's just, worth talking it's so about. Wild. Like, okay. If you're at that point where you're like wanting, having a connection with someone who isn't your spouse, like why not just talk to them about that? Exactly. You know, we have to be socialized to understand that that doesn't necessarily have to ruin your relationship because mm-hmm. your partner has some other connection with someone mm-hmm. else. Yeah. And I think this is some of the ways where like, I don't know, all of these things that we're talking about kind of like mix because it's like, no, I don't think that queer people are inherently more sexual than, you know, anyone else, you know, and there seems to be some more understanding within Mm -hmm. queer community around the idea that like attraction doesn't go away just because you have a partner. Um, Yeah. And 
a lot of the kind of heteronormative scripts about relationships, I mean, as soon as I, they're heteronormative, but like, yeah, duh. <laughs> like, there's just like this idea of like, um, you know, one of my favorites is like, you can't be friends with people of the opposite sex. Like that is wild. Like that yeah. is so, <laughs> I can't even fathom. But then it's like, do bisexual people get to be friends with no one? <laughs> you yep. know, like, it's not, <laughs> there's no consideration um, for anything outside of straightness. <laughs> and it's no just one. like, so bizarre. <laughs> Uh, I I have another question about like trying to figure out what, you know, a queer relationship like should look like. How how do you figure that out for yourself without just simply making it the opposite of a heteronormative ideal? Because like ideally you're you're not setting that structure up just based on being the opposite of of what this thing is. So like how do you go about figuring that out? I think like and this is not easy and I wish there was like a manual but there's not. <laughs> you can write mm-hmm. it. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, right. But I think that there shouldn't be because I think that really what it comes down to is it's like, what do we actually authentically desire? Mm-hmm. And that is so, so hard to access. And I don't think any of us can actually really access it because we are living in the world and we've been socialized. And so how could we ever actually access like true mm-hmm. desire? But trying to like understand that I think is really what it, what it comes down to. And it's like, if, if you truly, you know, want to be monogamous and it's not just, that is the thing that I am doing because that is the only thing that I have a script for. And that's the only thing I've ever seen. Um, and that's the only thing I know. And I'm not going to question that. I'm just going to go for it. You know, if you really truly want to be monogamous, like that is what makes you feel good you know, that's great. Like mm-hmm. polyamory or non-monogamy is not more evolved or better than monogamy. It's just that yeah. most polyamorous or non-monogamous people are thinking about relationships yeah. because like to make that choice, you have to think about it. Whereas to be monogamous, you don't ever have to think about it at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think really what it's about is like, yeah, figuring out who am I and what do I want? And like, how do I within myself and also within my relationships try to practice like uprooting systems of oppression? Um, How do I say no to heteronormative expectations? Like how do I do that? And it's, you know, we're not, we're not in a vacuum. It's, it's really, really hard. I think this conversation comes up a lot with like femme identity particularly for cis women or just women in general, the question of like, oh, makeup, like, isn't that patriarchal or like this, that, or the other thing? Isn't that inherently, it's like, there's no way to know. There's no way to like separate those things. Um, so I just tell yeah. myself, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. This kind of reminds me of, um, when I was in your bisexual support group and hopefully I'm not giving away content for free here on the podcast, but, um, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> when we, were, <laughs> we were talking about relationship anarchy, which is a, a style of non-monogamy. Um, I think we've talked a little bit about it, so we'll not go into a ton of detail, but there were these, I remember you had a worksheet where there were these different categories where you could like oh, choose yeah. what you wanted for your specific relationships, like financial, mm-hmm. sexual, which is different from like touching and hugging and cuddling. Are you going to go on dates? Like how much time are you going to spend together? So again, like you said, a lot of times when you're in a monogamous relationship, the expectation is that your partner will be all of these things for mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, breaking that down to decide what you want from your relationships, even your friendships, even relationships that aren't going to be sexual or romantic at all is really, has been really helpful for me 
and instrumental in, in changing how I think about and how I queer relationships as well. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you wanted to talk about that, but that was amazing. And also side note, if you ever get to take a support group or a class with Melissa, please do. It's amazing. It changed my life. Please so. do. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> that's so nice of you to say that. Yes. Come join me. Let's do wild things together. Um, so yeah. So, okay. The relationship anarchy, like smorgasbord, which is the thing that you can yeah. do with Google to like find this, this image is basically this idea that every relationship is a bucket. So any connection that you have with another person is a bucket and you can actually decide what you want in your bucket and what you don't. And too often what we do in our kind of like mononormative society is we say, well, we're calling this a romantic partnership, ergo, all of these things are in it, you know, or this is a friendship. So this is what's in it and this is what is not in our bucket. But the idea being, yeah, that you can actually choose what goes in the bucket. So you can say, hey, maybe together, we want like romantic commitment and connection, but like we do not want to share finances or we do not want to have children, or maybe I want to have children with someone else, um, you know, or whatever it is. And I think that it can be a really cool way to kind of visualize this idea of you get to choose what your relationships are and your relationships don't have to um, not be intentionally put together that you could actually be intentional about that and decide how yeah. you want to connect with people and on what. Totally. Would you say that if you find yourself perhaps coming into queer identity or, or, you know, found yourself kind of falling into the, the traps of, of heteronormativity, that that would be a good way to start querying your current friendships and relationships. How does, how does one go about that? I guess. <laughs> I don't know. That's, I mean, I think, I think, values clarification is a really good tool mm. um, because really getting to understand what our values are and some people might be coming into a form of again kind of like lowercase q queer identity um and not be interested in like the political side of it you know just be like yeah. i just this is who i you know who i'm attracted to but like i don't have values that match kind of a more like radical or politicized queerness um, I think that if you, you know, do some values clarification work and come to a conclusion that like, yeah, like actually that is really important to me. And I do want to be more intentional in the way that I show up in relationships. And I am curious about what it means to have relationships that are queered um, as mm -hmm. a verb. Like, yeah, I think that the smorgasbord is like an awesome tool. I mean, amazing things. Come up. Just, literally just try it. Just like I have done it with my friends or people in my life where I will like print it out or like have it on my phone and I'll do it like um, red, yellow, green. So I'll be like, okay, red, we don't want this in our bucket. Green, we do want it in our bucket. And yellow is like, if like if conditions change or maybe in the future kind of thing. And you'll be amazed at the things you find out. You have to be prepared for um, when you get to the romantic or sexual part of the thing and like, you disagree. Yeah. It's a little, can be awkward. Um, but besides <laughs> that, it can be really, really interesting to like have a conversation about like, what do you want our connection to look like? And what do I, and I've, I've honestly found in my life that one of the hardest conversations to have with people is actually when you have different desires for connection. And that is true regardless. I think we think about that a lot romantically, but it happens in friendships too. Like, 
friends who want to be closer than you want to be to them. Mm. And you have to communicate that and be like, I actually don't want to deepen this connection. Like I don't have a desire to deepen this connection. Um, And that shouldn't be awkward, but it is because we don't have language for it. And so one way I think to have that conversation, I think doing like a bucket together (laughs) could be a good way to be like, this is what I'm in in for. And this is what I'm not like, yeah, this is a level of closeness I want to have. That takes a lot of emotional maturity to be able to sit there with another person and and feel potential rejection in certain buckets. Mm -hmm. And also Mm -hmm. I know for me where I would, where I like, I've looked into relationship anarchy before and where I struggle is that I have a hard time identifying what I actually want, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which I blame my religious upbringing for. (laughs) For Mm -hmm. Kaylee, that's all that matters. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's hard for me to identify what I actually want out of something and be sure about that. Like, do you have any advice for how to get better Mm -hmm. at that? One thing is just, it's practice. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, I want to be clear that I'm not speaking from like an expert place of like, <laughs> oh yeah, I'm really good at this. You like, sound I'm like not, an expert, I'm if not, that helps. <laughs> I, I have the answer intellectually, but I mean, but the thing is that like, all of this takes practice. It takes an enormous amount of practice to do something different from what we've been socialized to do. Mm-hmm. Something I've been thinking a lot about over the past, let's say year is like neural pathways even. And the fact that if we engage in a behavior that's, that's a pattern of ours and we want to change it. So let's, I'll give you for one of my examples is I will lie about things just because not like compulsively, but I mean, like I, to save someone's feelings, mm-hmm. like yeah. I will lie. Um, and I'm trying to not do that anymore. Do you know how hard it is after that is what you have been doing your entire life? Yeah. It's like, literally you can feel it in your brain. Yeah. Your brain being like, I don't know how to not lie. <laughs> I feel like I'm going <laughs> to lie. And it's like, it's been amazing to think about it. And I've been trying to practice with the people in my life, just being able to be honest and say, for example, I'm noticing that I want to lie to you right now. Can you just give me a second to work through it? Like, give me a second wow. to make the other choice. Wow. Um, and like, That's amazing. You know, to have people, <laughs> yeah. To have people in your life be like, okay, because they don't want to be lied to. So like, you know, like they want you to choose a behavior that's going to be better for them. Right. <laughs> but making those choices is really hard. So like I, to be clear, right. We, we, our brains really like patterns and we'll do the thing that we're used to doing and to stop it from doing that and to choose a different path way that has not, it doesn't have a groove in it mm-hmm. is really, really, really difficult. So it's like an enormous amount of practice. But what I'm thinking about this particular question is, um, somatics. So I have a somatic coach, um, and I find it very, very useful because basically all of somatic work is how do you kind of hear what your body is telling you? Mm-hmm. Because your body has the knowing. And so it's about like, how can I, how can I identify the knowing that I feel? So like a great example is, you know, when you have a boundary, mm-hmm. like you can feel it in your body Yeah. and you might, you know, somebody like, do you want to hang out? And you can feel in your body that you don't. Mm-hmm. And you'll say, yeah, <laughs> for some reason. Right. So it's like, how can I notice when that feeling comes up and pause and make a different choice? Yeah. You know? So I think when it comes to like, how do you figure out what you want I I really want to validate that like religious upbringing or not, it is really hard Mm -hmm. to know what we want, particularly as oppressed people. Mm -hmm. The more marginalized you are, um, the harder it is because the more socialization you've had to make other people happy. Yeah. Um, And so, and to kind of not be in connection to yourself. Mm -hmm. And so I think um, re-engaging that connection with oneself 
it sounds like it should be easy, but it is a lot of work. It'll be years of work mm-hmm. if you even get to it. Mm-hmm. You know, like you might die, not really <laughs> feel like you have this perfect connected to yourself, but it's a practice. And I think to practice feeling for mm-hmm. your body wisdom, That's, I think is, is where it comes, what it comes down to. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense, especially, you know, and like you said, socialize to make other people happy to really like push those things down. It's, it's hard. It's almost like gaslighting yourself. <laughs> <laughs> having, yeah, it is. And I think having people in your life or forming community with people or even having just a few people in your life where you can just say, I'm working on this thing, mm-hmm. you know, and like so many different patterns that we fall into to be like, Hey, I'm working on saying no. Mm-hmm. Um, can you be a safe place for me to say no? Mm-hmm. Or I'm working on asking for help when I need help. Can you be a place where we practice that with each other? Yeah. Um, or yeah, again, to be like, I'm finding myself wanting to avoid this conversation. Um, and so if you notice that I seem a little distant, it's because I'm trying to force myself to be here when I'm uncomfortable, you know, mm-hmm. like, um, and to have people who support whatever it is, or like in a sexual situation, like, I don't really know what I want. Can I think about it? Mm-hmm. Um, can, can I get back to you? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, can <laughs> I, I'm trying to figure that out right now. Will you be patient with me? Yeah. Wow. I know. Who would have thought? Can you be patient with me as I figure out what my actual sexual desire is? You know, like what kind of good partner would be like, ah, no. You know what I mean? Like people would be like, yeah, of course I want you to figure out what you want and like Mm -hmm. to be able to have that communicated to me. But yeah, finding people in your life who will be patient as you try to figure these things out, I think is powerful. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Wow. That was a lot to take in on how to do (laughs) relationships better. (laughs) I want to move on to some maybe less intense stuff, some fun stuff. <laughs> Great. Okay. Let's, uh, I know that you're like a huge Gaylor conspiracy theorist. Oh, yeah. Who knows if it's a conspiracy? I, yes. <laughs> uh, who knows? It mm-hmm. could be real. Can you give an overview of what that is? <laughs> yes. Tell us what that is. And let's talk about some convincing yeah. Gaylor arguments. I would love to talk. <laughs> I love talking about Gaylor. Okay. So Gaylor is a word that is that is used to describe the conspiracy theory that Taylor Swift is queer. Is it a conspiracy? We don't know. Um, but <laughs> that that I guess that's true about conspiracies. And Gaylor can also be used to describe fans who are like pro the conspiracy theory. But so when we talk about Gaylor theories, we're talking about different types of evidence that could show potentially that Taylor Swift is queer, and it encompasses a lot of different things. It encompasses um, like theories uh, around like timelines and relationships that she's had in her life that might point to her having been in relationships with women or having not actually been in relationships with men that she's supposedly been in relationships <laughs> with. And then there's, and that can get a little sticky because that that is a little bit like speculating on a person's personal yeah. life, which can get a little bit ethically, you know, questionable. And then there's the like queer readings of Taylor Swift's music or comments that she makes. And that I don't think has an ethical blurry line because I think at the end of the day, like you are going to interpret things based on your own life or through a politicized lens. And I think uh, interpreting literature or art through a queer lens has always existed. But yeah, so those are kind of the different ways that uh, people apply a Gaylor lens. It, it is literally <laughs> so, queer culture yeah. to see ourselves in straight media and be like, it's totally not straight. <laughs> it's not. 
yeah, look at that right. moment. Those people right. are in love. <laughs> yes, yeah, you see that look? Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, some of my favorite theories are that a lot of Taylor's songs are about Carly Kloss and that they were in sort of mm-hmm. more of a friendship than what they said they were. What are your some of your favorite theories? I'm, I love Kaylor mm. theory. I really, I think I sh- really ship Taylor Swift and Carly Kloss. I, yeah, too. I really think there's something there potentially. Um, I was actually just talking to my partner about this yesterday because we were listening to reputation and there are just some songs. I mean, literally the line in dress where she says, I don't want you like a best friend. It's like, how is that about a man? How <laughs> yeah. is that about a man? <laughs> like, it's not, it <laughs> like, it's not. Um, and so there's, you know, I like, <sighs> I like all Gaylor theory. There's no Gaylor theory that I'm against. <laughs> I've been really interested lately in like beard theory, mm. right? So like a beard is the idea of like a person who shows up um, at, and acts as like your partner um, so that you can kind of hide mm-hmm. um, that you're queer. I've been like really interested in some, some of the beard theories um, of like men that she's been in relationships with where the relationships have been fake um, or just like PR moves. And I think I I am really interested in the lyrical analysis. Um, There's so many queer themes in her music. You really can't, if you, if you know to look for them, you can't unsee them. Like they're so (laughs) obvious and like, and in your face, I think that those are really, really interesting and kind of the theory that she's coming out to the people who, who will pick up on them, that that's what she's doing is she's clearly like acknowledging um, to the people who will pick up on it. Yeah. (laughs) My, my reading into lyrics is the entirety of Cornelia street, which is supposedly about Carly Kloss Mm. and their friendship anyway, but it's so romantic. It's like beyond romantic. Mm -hmm. And there's like all this, maybe they have their romantic bucket checked. Maybe, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. It's possible. And I think, you know, my, my thing about the Taylor Swift, Carly Kloss stuff is it's difficult because I am very pro female friendship yes. and I love female friendship and um, I love deep romantic female friendship. Like I'm, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. into it. And I, I want that to be able to exist outside of like the sexualization of those relationships. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I think Taylor Swift and Carly Kloss are <laughs> So it's like, there's I want, I want there to be a possibility that they really were like romantically best yeah. friends. Like I want that to be a possibility. And I also, mm, I don't know. There's, I, I don't know. So it's, it's, you can have yeah, both. I think it is. It's definitely yeah. complex. And yeah. Cornelia street. You cannot make the argument that Cornelia street is about, you know, Taylor Swift's boyfriend. It's like, <laughs> Carly Claus literally had a bedroom in Cornelia Street apartment. Exactly. It's like, it's, come it's on. About her. And it's interesting you mentioned about I'm, deep I'm romantic it. female relationships. I think those have been really undervalued or kind of shrugged off by history and society a lot. And women where they're, you know, like the ongoing joke of like history will say they were just roommates or whatever, but it's like clear mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. they were not just roommates. I think there's also this weird, I've heard this weird, I can't decide if it's homophobic or not, but this weird, like, girls or you know femme people will like confuse their feelings of friendship they have with a girl as like having a crush on them oh yeah Mm -hmm. where it's like why can they not be both a and like who are you Mm -hmm. to tell her that she doesn't have a crush on her friend like what and I think that women's and you know women presenting people or femme people like they're 
relationships are allowed to be emotionally close in ways that unfortunately a lot Mm -hmm. of men's aren't. And I think a lot of women experience intimacy, emotional intimacy with other women, like way before they experience it with boys and men. So I I don't want to write that off as not queer either. Yeah. It's, I think it's really complex because I do think like I was saying, and you know, uh, as you're saying, like female friendship is for me in my life has been the most powerful, impactful relationships right. I've ever had, you know, the, the, the deepest and the most, mm. yeah, important in terms of like life changing experiences have been with really deep friendships. And I am so grateful to have had those in my life. And yeah, but then there's also, you know, my mom telling me when I came out to her, you know, um, everyone has crushes on their girlfriends. I was told that too. When I, <laughs> and like the exact same thing. Do they? <laughs> Do they? Mom? Maybe you you're know? just hella gay, mom. <laughs> yeah, maybe you're gay. Find you know? so find out, okay? <laughs> maybe you do need a parade for your sexuality. Right, yeah. Or even the idea that even that phrase girl crush, which right. I kind of hate, like exists. Because girl crush actually doesn't mean I have a crush on you. It's it's something else. It means like I want to be you or I want to be friends. Or like or admiration. Like yeah. yeah. Yes. And it's like, why do we have to call it that? Because actually some women do have crushes on women. And mm-hmm. so that's like a, it's weird to me to like have a, a phrase that means something. Yeah. It's like, it's okay if that's blurred for you also. If yeah. you're like, honestly, I don't know how I feel about this person. Like, let it be blurred. And I, I don't know. I think it's so complicated why women are given more social spaciousness um, to have complicated relationships with other mm-hmm. women that are like maybe blurry um, where like men, for example, don't have yeah. that kind of um, like, a, like ability yeah. from like a social place. Yeah. And it's like, I don't know. I just wish that in general, we could just let things be more exactly. complex. <laughs> yeah. Like people are uncomfortable with the blurriness and the like in between, like maybe I like you as a friend, mm-hmm. maybe I like you as a little bit more, but we can maintain this relationship and we'll be fine. I don't have to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And that's Mm -hmm. exactly where all that, like, you know, people feel like they need to prove their gayness or queerness with, with sexual acts or, Mm. or other people will expect that of you. Like if you tell someone you're bisexual and they're like, well, have you ever kissed a woman? Have you ever had sex with a woman? Mm -hmm. And it's like, that doesn't matter. (laughs) Right. That's so irrelevant. (laughs) (sighs) And it's interesting too, because it's like, People don't ask that. Like people who have never had sexual contact with another person, period. You're not like, I don't know if you know that you're straight. <laughs> maybe we should start saying that. <laughs> maybe you should, yeah. Maybe you should like have sex with a man before you like go around saying you're a straight person. Yeah, this doesn't happen. It's, spoiler, it's often not great. So um, anyway. <laughs> right, so you might actually be confused. Yeah, I uh, think that's what it is. <laughs> I think everyone should just have mm. sex with a lot of people before they make any decisions about anything. <laughs> Yeah, maybe that should be the rule. (laughs) I approve. I approve. Okay, so now we're going to be kind of wrapping up, and we kind of ask people the same question at the end of everything. So go for it. We try to. Yeah, sometimes we don't get there, but (laughs) we try to. Sometimes we forget. (laughs) So the last question we like to ask kind of wraps back up into sex ed. How do you wish that your sex education had been different to maybe better help prepare you for your your journey of life. (laughs) Uh, You know, I wish that my sex education had been more of a community effort Mm. of like women, for example, 
helping young women. Like I have been thinking about this a lot about the ways in which information is passed Mm -hmm. down. Mm -hmm. And part of what I've been thinking a lot about is my partner has a four-year-old daughter who is very femme. She has a lot of feminine energy. She's very drawn to Mm -hmm. women. She just like loves women. Um, And she's very drawn to me and very attached to me. And I've been thinking a lot about the opportunity that I have in that relationship to have like a gigantic impact Mm -hmm. on this small person's life. Um, And I've been thinking about the practices of like being honest, you know, which seems like a thing that we should be doing with children anyway, but we don't. Yeah. You know, and I think about she saw me crying one day and she was like, you seem sad. And I was so I so quickly wanted to be like, I'm not sad. Everything's fine. (laughs) You know, and um, instead I was like, I am sad. Let's talk about being sad, you know, and like this opportunity that you have to really impact a child. And it makes me think about, oh, I wish that as a child that I had had and I had lots of women around me. I did. Um, But I wish that there had been more of this kind of communal sense of responsibility, not just to make sure I had things like food, you know, and, and shelter, you know, like I definitely know growing up and even now any of my aunts, whatever would like take me in if I needed it, you know, but like also this communal responsibility around, especially because I think of feminine femininity as just so sacred of like having a hand in really like raising a young person into an adult Mm -hmm. um, through even that kind of like, yeah, lineage. And so I wish if anything, I don't really think about what I wish sex ed had been like in school. I think about, I really wish that sex ed had been something that was just um, seen as a part of what it means to like raise a child Mm -hmm. and, and to have conversations about sex, about relationships, about bodies, about consent, all of these things um yeah in a very like communal and holding way yeah sounds lovely yeah <laughs> yeah wouldn't it wouldn't it be nice if we got <laughs> that would have been pleasant some people do and like Great i'm for them. so happy for them. <laughs> good for them <laughs> so i want to leave some time for you to kind of plug yourself and projects you're working on and tell us about what you do why why are you laughing Nancy? Did I just change you said plug yourself what do oh, you want me to do sorry. with that <laughs> i will rephrase <laughs> I would love to leave some time for you to promote some stuff that you're working on, what you do. I kind of am getting a little inkling because I follow you on social media that you might be moving into sex and relationship coaching. And this podcast will be launched after you make that announcement. So Mm -hmm. you can talk about that if you feel comfortable doing that. Yeah. Well, this comes at a magical time um, because I am actually in the process of, um, moving into a new, yeah, career trajectory where I am offering sex and relationships coaching, one-on-one coaching for folks who are looking at really anything about relationships that people are dealing with, but particularly bisexual identity, avoidant attachment, sex and eating disorder recovery, um, intimate partner violence, breakups are another thing that I have like expertise and interest in. So I'm um, ethical non-monogamy. I'm very, very excited to talk with people about these things. And in addition to doing that one-on-one work, I also run support groups. So I do a bisexual support group. Um, I just started an avoidant attachment support group. If magically I have the energy for it, I will be creating a third support group for healing a broken broken heart um, for fall. And so I'm trying to do, 
Yeah, I'm really trying to be in my purpose, um, which is like doing group facilitation work. Um, and I think also that one-on-one -on -one work is really important. So um, yeah, people can definitely find me on Instagram, but also on my website is melissafabello.com, which is easy to remember. My Instagram is on there um, for any information that people want to find. Amazing. Thank you. Sounds like you can help yeah. people work through a lot of different kinds of <laughs> issues and discoveries. And that's the, that's the hope. <laughs> you might need to join a support group, runner support group. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> For someone to be like, do not try to create a third support group right now in a year. That's a lot of energy. Um, we'll that's amazing. Can you, okay. So melissafabello.com. That's spelled M-E-L-I-S-S-A-F-A-B-E-L-L-O. Dot com. Dot com. Mm -hmm. Check it yes, out. it is. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. This was such a, a great cool talk. conversation. Yeah. Like, I'm I'm juiced. Oh, thank you. I yeah, we covered a lot. That was that was a lot of ground. We could have done an entire podcast on yeah, any of these topics. Have. So. Thank you. Halfway through, I was like, let's just talk about Gaylor. You know what? We've talked about a lot. Let's just yeah, let's uh, just throw Gaylor in. Like throw in Gaylor. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, if you have anything to tell us, if you have any questions, if you want to let us know how amazing Melissa is, we already know that, but you can reach out to us yeah. via email at hello at sexedshouldn'tsuck.com. You can also check out our socials, Sex Ed Shouldn't Suck, on Instagram, Twitter, yeah. I think even Facebook. Uh, we don't use that. We technically you can have a TikTok. <laughs> we do? I didn't even we know have, that. We do. Well, I claimed the domain, but I... Okay. I don't know how to... I mean, I kind of... That's not true. I know how to TikTok. I just haven't. Yeah. So there's no content, but talk. you should follow us there in case there is content. Maybe when we're done recording episodes, I'll make some TikTok content. Tickety we'll figure talk. it out. Yeah. Yeah. You should follow us there. Tickety talk. Yeah. Follow us to encourage us to make content. <laughs> <laughs> so we feel bad enough <laughs> to make content. Uh, well, also... Uh, if you want, you can check out our website at sexedshouldn'tsuck.com. Over there, you can find our shop that has things like our logo shirt and our special springtime birds and the bees design shirt and stickers and mugs and whatnot. There's all kinds of cool things. So go take a look-see there. Buy something because of capitalism. And uh, if you want to find other ways to support the pod, you can check out our Patreon we have all different kinds of tiers of support every month that really help us out to keep producing content for y'all. Maybe if we get like two new subscribers, I'll make a, a I'll learn a TikTok dance. Oh my god, I don't I'm make a that really promise. Bad, I'm a bad dancer. I got drunk at my wedding and tried to do the WAP dance next to my friend that can dance really well, and that was a <laughs> moment for me. Yeah. So if you want to see something like that, um, get yourself and a friend to subscribe to our Patreon, and I'll do a stupid dance, and you can all make fun of me, uh, and it'll be just like middle school all because over again. Because of capitalism. Yes, because of capitalism. Anyways, shout out to our patron, Bill. Bill. Bill is a subscriber on our tier that gets the episodely shout out so thank you Ilbay, which is his name in pig latin <laughs> i thought you called him bill bay which is like bay that's true he's both bilbo bilbo baggins 
<laughs> and we got a newsletter, don't we? Um, so you yes. should check that out because we usually have a summary of what is going on in the podcast, stuff about recent mm-hmm. news, interesting stuff around the internet that we find. It is, it's a whole time. That's on Substack if you want to be kept up to date. It's called, yeah, it's called that time of the month. Check it out. It's monthly in case it wasn't clear. <laughs> Finally, thank you to Kent, who is the person that masters our sound every week. He's wonderful. Truly a master and of we sound. we appreciate all of his hard work. And uh, we are going to be taking a break for the next month. So the whole month of July, there will be no episodes, but we will be coming back to finish out season three in August. I believe we still have about nine more episodes left in this season and a lot of them are already recorded. So like we're going to be talking to uh, more purity culture people, some like youths (laughs) that have been working on getting better sex education for their schools. Uh, We're going to be talking to an author. We're going to be talking about abortion, all kinds of different cool stuff. So we'll see you in a few weeks. We're going to try to rest and rejuvenate, deal with all the crazy things of life that it's going on right now. And then we will be back and we can't wait to finish out this season with a bang (laughs) as you will. (laughs) okay love you bye bye oh god sorry my partner started calling me because he's not thinking about the facts that i am on this call (laughs) um sorry your ears were burning oh my god (laughs) oh my god hey baby i'm on a podcast Oh, that was so cute. <laughs> was that them that just said, oh, my God, and hung up? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, oh. That's so cute.